Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. This morning I'm at UTS in the city in Sydney and I'm very excited to be joined by Associate Professor Melissa Kang who is an academic, a clinician and also an advocate and her focus um, in her research is looking at population health, um, specifically looking at young people, in particular young people's sexuality and sexual health and she also does a lot of writing. She's an author. Welcome, thank you for joining us Melissa. Thanks Emily, (laughs) lovely to talk to you. So maybe we could start by you explaining what your role is here at the university. I'm a full-time associate professor here in the discipline of public health, which is a very new discipline here at the University of Technology in Sydney. And I have an integrated role, which means I teach, I coordinate subjects and develop curriculum in public health subjects. I also do research. And at the moment, because I've only been here just under two years, I'm still working on some projects that I was working on before I came here and just started a couple of newer ones. They're all about young people and youth health. That's always been my focus of research as well as uh, most of my teaching actually. But I also am a clinician and I still work one day a week as a primary care clinician in Western Sydney with homeless young people. I've been doing that job for over 20 years now. That's fantastic. And with the new program, the new public health program here at UTS, what's sort of the ethos behind that and what are they sort of hoping to achieve with the public health program? The ethos at UTS across the board, there's a very strong social justice focus across all the faculties. So with the MPH, of course, it very much lends itself to that philosophy, looking at uh, vulnerable, marginalised populations, looking at the other, the other thing that UTS does seem to have a bit of a track record in is its links with industry. I think being a university of technology, mm. it's always had that. Um, but the health faculty here was nursing only in midwifery for a very long time. So public health is still quite new and has brought in academics, most of whom have quite strong links with industry. So someone like myself, for example, I've, I work for New South Wales Health as a clinician, but I've also done other projects with New South Wales Health very strong connections to general practice and links with other universities as well. So I think the the public health approach here in our teaching is, and it's not just a Master of Public Health, we also have a Bachelor of Health Science. Okay. It's about allowing, giving students, I guess, research-informed teaching, but also opportunities to do placements out in the real world, in in various sort of industries and very with various organizations so these obviously are not necessarily clinicians they're people with an interest in public or population health and that's the main focus and what we're trying to develop really strongly as we we start these fairly new degrees we still haven't uh, we're into our third year of intake this year mm, i understand we're very early on at Macquarie as well yeah. i think it's great the placements i think that's really important mm-hmm. i done yeah. a lot of my learning in yeah. my actual workplaces. Yeah. Look, it's just being able to see the application of what you're learning in the real world. It's so important, right from the start, I think. Fantastic. And now your research is um, very interesting to me, um, such a strong focus on such an important issue, yes. marginalised young people. Yes. So is there something you're working on at the moment that you're particularly mm. passionate about you could tell us about? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm still very much immersed in a big project that was funded by New South Wales Health back in about late 2015 actually, but it got going, the project got going in early 2016. And it's called the Access 3 study. The reason being that there was actually an Access 1 and 2, but a long time ago. So I've been involved in Access research really for most of my academic career, going back to about the year 2000. Access 3 
is looking at not only the current barriers or challenges and enablers to access to healthcare that young people have, but we also built in a longitudinal component which allowed us to track young people over time. And we actually were able to follow most of our sample, 85% retention across 12 months. Yeah, And this was marginalised young people. We also interviewed senior health professionals in the system across the state to get their perspectives on navigation particularly. So what happens between services, not just in one particular service. And then at the end, we held a policy translation forum, which brought together senior policy analysts and policy makers from the health department, as well as senior clinicians, as well as young people. And we we were able to present some of the preliminary findings at that stage, that was at the end of 2016, and then really workshopped the issues and asked for people to make policy recommendations from those. And it was really rewarding in the middle of last year, in 2017, to have the new youth health framework for New South Wales Health launched by the health minister at our youth health conference here in Sydney. So it was a real sort of completing of the circle. Having said that, we're actually still doing some sub-analyses, as one always does with research. Um, there's there's so much data that you just almost don't know what to do yeah. with it. So we've had a couple of publications, but we're really trying to finalise a technical report as well as look at a lot of other ways of disseminating the findings from the study. So it's been a really rewarding piece of work because primarily because we've now seen it articulated in some aspects of the new policy that will have real impact on the way at least public sector services are delivered. Uh, But it's also it will also have, I think, ongoing impact with how we inform, say, training of GPs, for example. And particularly this new insight we now have into navigation. I think that's something that has been lacking up until now. So we know, you know, the kind of the reasons that young people might not engage with a healthcare service. We've known that for a long time. So Lots fears about confidentiality, feeling a bit embarrassed, not wanting their parents to know. What we have now, though, is an update of that. So we know that cost is actually the most important barrier, no longer confidentiality. In fact, that was quite low on the list. And, but also a, sort of what we call intrapersonal factors, like just feeling a bit embarrassed, a bit fear of being judged by health professionals. We have some really poignant examples of young people feeling discriminated against uh, for various reasons. We have really rich data on how difficult it is to move between services due to service structures, intake processes, referral systems, you know, different record keeping systems, Mm. just those sort of structural things that just make it clunky and inefficient. And that actually has a real impact on a young person's ability to to go from one service to another to get the care that they need. So those sorts of findings will inform future training of doctors, I think, at undergraduate level, training of nurses, training of all health professionals, but also at the postgraduate level, particularly around general practice, practice nursing. We think that there's a lot that we can now teach around thinking about oneself as a health professional as part of a much bigger system and having that kind of big system thinking when you're seeing patients that whatever you might negotiate with a patient as being important for their health care will potentially be uh, blocked or challenged by the by the system at large. So build, building that into any sort of management plan is really important. 
they're just some of the key findings. I guess another one is the importance of technology. We deliberately asked the young people about the role that technology plays in their help seeking and it is ubiquitous. So young people engage with healthcare online first and foremost. If they have symptoms or if they're just interested in finding out about something, they will look online, I think as we all probably do, Mm. and they will then if they feel that they need to go and see a service, of course, if they have a regular GP and they trust them, they have a relationship with them, they will. that's where they will go. But if they don't, or if they're moving around, they will look up services online and they'll make a decision sometimes about which one they'll try based on their their online presence. So that's a really important message for services. Yeah. And young people have said very clearly that they need information also about cost and waiting times and those kind of practical things things um, not just about the the people that work there so that's really important they made it really clear that they'd love to have technology aided appointment systems so being able to make appointments online having sms reminders was really helpful for them not having to repeat their story all the time so having a way of capturing health information that that i think things like my health record will, Mm. will be bringing to to the population so those are those are some really practical technological solutions to some of the challenges that young people face yeah that's great Mm. and in terms of your work with homeless youth um i must admit my ignorance in this area i don't really know much about it what are some of the big issues Mm. and sort of barriers in that area to Mm. really helping in you know improve the lives of such a marginalized population youth homelessness came to public attention in the mid 80s actually there was a royal commission into homeless young people and that led to the establishment of a network of services around the country called Innovative Health Services for Homeless Young People. Now many of those services still exist, they're no longer funded by the Commonwealth, they've been taken up by states or NGOs and that's, it's, it's in that network of services that I have worked. So that's the public sector run by New South Wales Health and, and I happen to work in the two that are located in Western Sydney. Homeless young people have um, there are, in Australia, we, we define homelessness as having sort of three levels. There's primary, secondary and tertiary homelessness. Young people mostly fit into the secondary category, which means that they may have roofs over their heads, but the, the accommodation they're living in is unstable or insecure or unsafe. So we see a lot of couch surfing, a lot of moving from one youth refuge to another, perhaps having periods of time back with family or some member of an extended family, then being sort of out on the street perhaps for a day or two, then back in a crisis refuge and then back in a friend's house for a few weeks. So that kind of very transient lifestyle. Having a home is obviously the most basic of needs, uh, and access to food, shelter. And so without that, everything everything else follows. So the young people that we see first and foremost need stable accommodation and the services that I work in and that these initial innovative health services for homeless young people um, were established to do was to have multidisciplinary teams where there was a component that looked after the basic needs. So the services where I work, for example, has showers, toilets and laundry facilities and a kitchen drop-in area where young people can come and get uh, those sorts of things done if, if they're sort of moving between places. But we also have uh, all staff trained to help 
find accommodation, have access to the right sort of support services within the community, including places like Centrelink, um, accommodation crisis lines and all those sorts of things. And then it's they were designed to be soft entry points to healthcare. So while they're there having their showers and getting some food and talking to a staff member about trying to find accommodation, they might casually meet a nurse or a doctor or a counsellor in the waiting room or in the corridors and just get chatting about health. So the model of medical care that we deliver is very, very preventative in nature. And we look at things, for example, like their vaccination records, whether they've had completed adolescent particularly vaccines and many of them haven't and we offer vaccinations on the spot if if they would like them. We also do um, you know very thorough medical and psychosocial histories with them so that we can identify if you know they have a chronic condition that's been under treated or completely neglected at times. That's a common one would be asthma Um, but we also take an extensive psychosocial history. It might take place over time once they've engaged with a health professional but it's been relatively easy to achieve that because they are very very youth friendly spaces and the staff are very youth friendly I suppose and we have a lot of time to spend with them and so we, you know we, we look at risk behaviors like drug and alcohol use risk, risky sexual behavior we offer contraception and advice about uh, sexual health we offer advice about substance use and and a really important area is mental health so we we do some mental health screening, but we also have teams of counsellors who who can provide uh, generalist or some sometimes subspecialist counselling services as well. So it is a bit of a they're set up as sort of one stop shops, um, but increasingly with our sort of uh, more complex health system, I think we we work across other services as well. So, for example, we share clients sometimes with headspace centres, okay. with general practice, sometimes with hospital specialists, depending on what the issues are that a young person has. And do you think the services that are currently in place, do you think there's enough funding and everything that it's enough for priority? <laughs> there's never enough funding. It's <laughs> <laughs> a silly question. Yeah. Um, I think that it would be really, that where, where I see the really priority areas as far as healthcare is concerned are in primary medical care. So we do work with general practice but a lot of general practices have very short appointment times or don't have appointment times, particularly in the areas where we're located because they happen to be in the sort of hubs of in, in Western Sydney where there are sort of larger medical centre type practices. So there are, there are fewer practices that are accessible, physically accessible, that don't have fast turnovers. But we do, we do work with general practice. But what what would be really good would be to have more nursing and medical hours to do some of these really comprehensive and thorough assessments and put some management plans into place and then work with GPs. So that's mainly what I do. I do yeah. kind of an, a big assessment then try and link them up with general practice. So if we could have more of that, it would be really good. The other main area is access to specialists, particularly psychiatry. It would be wonderful if we would have psychiatrists come and visit us Mm. from time to time we did have we have had those services intermittently Uh, we haven't now for several years Um, and we do have a lot of trouble getting access to psychiatry for most of our young people in in you know at no cost or yeah yeah and how did you first get interested in this specific Mm. area um, of health research well I 
when I think back to my high school years, you know, I, I never sort of wanted to do medicine, actually. But really? I was very interested in working with people and I wondered about being a teacher. And then I think partly a sense of, oh, well, you know, if you get the marks, maybe you should do that. It was a, it was a, seen as a, a good degree to do if you, if you got into medicine, which I did. So I just embarked on a medical degree straight out of high school. I was young for my year. I wasn't really ready to face those challenges. I didn't particularly enjoy the first probably three years of medicine. And then once I started actually working with patients and talking to patients uh, as a medical student, I realised how rewarding that was and how much one could actually contribute. But it was a it was a one-off lecture one day on adolescent medicine, which was this new specialty. There were about two such specialists in the country, and they both happened to be in Sydney. And I heard a lecture from one of them, and I suddenly the light went on. I thought, this is what I really want to do. I suppose at the time I was probably still considered an adolescent or young person. Well, I was still a young person, and it just resonated with me. I was particularly interested in health education and particularly sex education with young people having experienced as a young woman zero sex education (laughs) and feeling like it was a real problem a real void I just decided I'd pursue that see if it if it was what I wanted to do now adolescent medicine as a specialty in Australia is still a specialist qualification that you do through paediatrics I did do a year and a bit of paediatric training but it was incompatible with having a family uh, and having children which I did, and it, it required, it was only a full-time program at the time. So I did go into general practice, which was the only part-time option. And in fact, I really enjoyed general practice training. It was really rewarding because it was holistic, which is what adolescent medicine is as well. Yeah. I was just really lucky. I, I was able to do special skills placements as a GP registrar in adolescent medicine. Whilst on my first uh, bout of maternity leave, I enrolled Um, in a Master of Community Health that was a new degree at the University of New South Wales and I completed that and really enjoyed research. That's where I learnt some research skills and I really enjoyed that sort of public and population health approach to health Um, and I still enjoyed working clinically in general practice and then was offered a permanent job in the Department of Adolescent Medicine as a GP. So I feel really very, very fortunate that by the time I'd finished my general practice training, I walked straight into a job in the Department of Adolescent Medicine at the Children's Hospital, working as a clinician. It was my dream job. And I learned so much from my colleagues about communication skills and a family-oriented approach, dealing with complex psychosocial and medical problems. It really enriched my experience as a doctor and because it was still a very young field and I was one of very, very few GPs ever showing an interest in young people, I did get asked to come and give talks and to perhaps talk to GPs and registrars. So that sparked my interest in teaching, I suppose, and I realised in the end that having once thought I might be a school teacher, that I could actually be a teacher of adults in, yeah. in, in tertiary at tertiary level and just became really interested in training and teaching and, and you know, helping to write courses and curriculum, particularly around uh, youth-friendly healthcare. 
then that clinical job, well, I, I was offered a, a secondment out of my clinical role into a brand new centre for the advancement of adolescent health, which was funded by New South Wales Health. And I thought, well, I'll do that for a bit. And that really opened my eyes into the the importance of working with policymakers and actually having population health impact. Mm. So I was doing research, I was doing teaching and training, and I was also working with policy. Not, I mean, you know, just having meetings with policymakers and and seeing how important that was in actually having an impact. Yeah. So that I did that for a couple of years, and then was. Um, had the opportunity to move into an academic job away from my, my work at the Children's Hospital. And it was very hard to leave that environment because it had been so nurturing and so rewarding. But I did feel in terms of my future career that probably it was going to be in an academic job. So I then moved to the Department of General Practice at the University of Sydney based at Westmead Hospital, which is where I was still working clinically, still in this I still did some work, outreach work with the youth health service where I still work now. I was doing that as part of my hospital-based job and I continued to do that. So then I got involved in uh, teaching medical students uh, primary health care, but I was able to focus on the areas that I was more expert in, which was sexual health and adolescent health and communication skills. So I think they were my three sort of key areas. and. I eventually, after about five years or so in that job, I embarked on a PhD finally. So it was a long time coming and it was a long time finishing as well. Congratulations, <laughs> big achievement. <laughs> so that's sort of my my career path in a nutshell. Um, my PhD was looking at chlamydia testing and how to increase participation by young people in chlamydia testing. And it was quite innovative at the time. It was a email intervention with young people so it was a randomized control trial that took place completely in cyberspace across the country so never met these young people they were it was promoted and recruited online they completed um, the baseline questionnaire online and then we randomized them delivered the intervention then followed them up so that was really really exciting and really fun to do um, and that that was the basis of my PhD. I did an additional qualitative study as well um, because I was really interested in learning a particular type of qualitative analysis, which was Foucauldian discourse analysis. I just felt that I needed to um, exercise a part of my brain that had never yeah. been exercised <laughs> before. And, and, you know, so I did this RCT, which was all very quantitative, and then this other quite, quite interesting piece of research. It was quite small, but really, really rewarding as well. So finally finished that part-time so throughout this whole time I I worked part-time I was bringing up four children and um, seeing them through to the end of their high school years really before I was felt that I was ready to to work full-time so um, so that's when I you know finally finished that and I was um, interested in in looking for more work and and then this job here at UTS just landed on my feet almost, really, and, and it was a full-time position. So I've been very lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing career history. Mm. And looking back, is there any sort of lessons learned that other people might benefit from or anything you'd do differently? Or I do think that even though I probably wouldn't change anything now, I do think that I was way too young 
to do medicine when I did and I do think that it's good that medical programs have moved into mostly into graduate programs mm. I know it ends up being a lifetime of study but um, I think that one needs a certain bit of life experience in order to be a good doctor uh, or good health professional good researcher any of it really so it'd be about just taking some time um, and even I mean I think you know the undergraduate medical programs that I am familiar with are absolutely wonderful um, so maybe it's about making sure that you have some time off before you embark on that yeah. I, I just think don't be too young when you start studying medicine because it's it, it does impact on you later in life I, I think it was really hard for me as a woman because the only training opportunities that I felt were available to me as someone who wanted to and did have children quite young were um, was general practice. Now I don't regret that, but I think that um, all all specialty training yeah. programs should should be made part time, and there should be flexibility. The challenges that I think I felt were around being a woman and the the fact that the <clears throat> the workplace um, has taken so long to evolve to being sort of to think about equal opportunity yeah. and gender equity and it's still problematic even in health and even in academia mm. um, there's so much pressure to to achieve things to do grants to write papers to um to see clients or patients whatever it is there's so much pressure mm. that it's really quite difficult and i think that there you know i'd like to see many more men um also you know feeling like they can have opportunities to take their parental yeah. and and share some of that you know um with with women and and but for workplaces also to to really respect and encourage that what do you think we can do now as women in the workplace mm. to encourage that kind of continued development i think it's about first and foremost accepting that as absolutely valid and essential for a fairer world i mean we've got we've got to sort of think towards the future it won't change in my lifetime mm. but i'd like to think in my perhaps my daughter's lifetimes that they will start to see that happening i think that we need to be um <clears throat> so we need, from a very early age need to be thinking that um girls and women have equal opportunity and should take it and that boys and men uh, should have the opportunity to spend time at home raising mm. children. I think if we can we can instigate that sort of attitude right from the start, uh, and then hard as it might be, sort of to try and make that happen along the way. A and that's different for every family and every person and um, every workplace, I suspect. But but to really advocate for those kinds of policies to happen. They, they're certainly there in the public sector and in universities. Yeah. I think it needs to happen everywhere. But really making sure it happens. So, for example, here at UTS, and I know that this is not... Um, and I, you know, we're not alone in this, but we, we have a relatively new core meetings policy that must take place sort of within school hours, roughly. Um, so those sorts of things that need yeah. to be respected by managers and CEOs. And, you know, I still hear even in the public sector, you know early morning meetings that are scheduled because everyone, you know, the, 
the high up people are too busy to meet yeah. at other times and that just that just needs to change um, yeah I think you're right I think it is very much a yeah, long-term yeah, long-term yeah, goal yeah. Uh, I'm just conscious of time um, so I might just finish with my usual final two yeah. questions so the last one is do you have any sort of general sort of life advice or things you'd tell your younger self or sort of early career researchers or people who are putting way too much pressure on themselves yeah. Look, that's the thing that I see all the time and, and I would certainly tell my younger self slow down uh, take some time off study and actually experience mm. the real world volunteer travel just learn some life skills mm. before embarking on a, on a really stressful career path because it's all part of your learning and you'll be much better at your job if you have those experiences I think that would be the most important thing mm. I'm just, still trying to learn that lesson yeah. but slowing down is important yeah. um, and do you have a favorite book or a favorite movie that's you know really inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world I have a favorite book did it change the way I thought about the world well I have a bit of a it's not really a secret in fact it's not a secret at all but something that I a lot of people don't know about me is that I'm a Jane Austen fanatic. Oh, me too. And I belong to the Jane Austen Society. Oh, Australia. that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and so really my favourite book is all of her books. And I do think actually that a lot there's a lot to be learnt from her wisdom, which Hollywood movies and TV productions do not do justice to. So Jane Austen had a lot of emotional intelligence and I think if we can read her books with that lens, through that lens and learn about how her characters reflect on their own thoughts and feelings and how that changes their understanding of relationships and people, there's a lot of wisdom in those books. And they're just a lot of fun to read because they're really funny as well. So I, I think that's probably my best answer to that question. There are so many I love movies and and. Um, I have lots of favourite movies as well, but but I'd have to I'd feel disloyal if I didn't say that read a Jane Austen book yeah, and read, <laughs> read about um, read it read it with an emotional intelligence uh, lens and and there's a lot to be learnt. Oh, I think that's an excellent answer. I love Austen. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Emily. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next time on stories in public health.